Hi, Rod Rorick, Rorick Knows Podcast, helping you be a better you. And I can think of nobody else that can help us be a better you than Dr. Robbie Pearl. Robbie, welcome. Hey, Ron, it's so good to be back with you. Likewise. And you know, Robbie doesn't really need an introduction. He's kind of a renaissance, surgeon renaissance physician. He's got an incredible pedigree. I mean, Yale, Stanford, and we were just talking, he's been traveling around the world again. And he was also the previous uh, CEO of, of Kaiser Permanente, headed over 10,000 physicians for over 15 years. And now he's traveling all around the world. We're going to get into some of that. He's an author of two incredible books, a bestseller, and the recent one's called Uncaring, the Culture of Medicine that Kills Doctors and Patients. Man, that's provocative. But he is an amazing physician and a great close friend. And believe it or not, he's a plastic surgeon too and a talented one. And I love, I love that because he gives back. He's a great educator and a great friend. So, Robbie, thank you. So let's do My this. Pleasure, Rod. So, all right. So, you know, you've written, I mean, you're probably, you, know, you are a world expert on, on healthcare. So, so what, what are the problems with healthcare today, globally and in the U.S.? And, and then we're going to get to problem solving because I never want to go from negative to negative. I want to go to positive. So, sure, Rod. You know, each community is different. So maybe Dallas isn't the same as some other places, but. When I look across the United States, and by the way, the same kinds of issues are in other countries too. It's just that they're not as large because of price differentials. But when I look in the United States, what do we see? We spend nearly twice as much as any other country, almost $13,000 per American on healthcare. Wow. Switzerland's at, a, at around nine, Germany's around seven, everyone else is half of us. And our outcomes, and I don't mean minor things, we're talking about life expectancy, mm -hmm. childhood mortality, maternal mortality, our outcomes are last amongst the 12 most industrialized nations. When you take it down to the individual, four out of 10 Americans, 40%, we're talking about over 100 million people say that medical bills are creating major financial stress with 25% of Americans saying they're happy to give up necessities. We're talking about things like food and clothes and housing in order to pay for that care. And within the profession, right. the most recent study from the Mayo Clinic, 60% of doctors were reporting symptoms of burnout, dissatisfaction, lack of fulfillment. You know, Rod, I was... When I was first chosen CEO, you mentioned that. I went to the Oregon Health Sciences building in uh, Oregon and gave a talk. And after my talk, I was wandering around the building. And I saw a sign there. I remember to this day, big letters across the top. It said, quality, access, cost. And the bottom is small font, pick any two. That was 25 years ago. And the mentality that says we can only do two out of three is still here today. That was before we had this smartphone, telemedicine, data analytics, artificial intelligence. Why are we still living in the last century? And what, why is that? I mean, th that's astounding and it's very humbling because, you know, we say hey, America is great and it is great. But boy, we we're not so great in healthcare anymore. So why, nope. why is that? I mean, let's 
talk about that and then we'll talk about sure. some solutions. So why, why, how did that happen? Well, I think the biggest problems are systemic. Mm-hmm. Remember, doctors work incredibly hard. None of this is about doctors slopping off or right. doctors not caring. No, they work actually far harder than they should. The burden that they have is the dysfunctional system. The right. same problem that patients have is what doctors have. It's a 19th century cottage industry. I mean, Rod, would you ever design it this way with doctors fragmented across the community, unconnected with each other, unconnected with hospitals, paying them on a piecemeal basis? The more you do, the more you get paid. Whether there's a good result, a bad result, whether it adds value or not, whether you have a complication, you know, you still get paid. No, you you would pay for value, for outcomes, for results. And the technology, as we said earlier, is a problem. I mean, the most common way that doctors communicate is the fax machine, an 1834 invention. My God. And we think of ourselves, and we are in so many ways, as being at the cutting edge of science, but it's not because of what we do that maximizes the system of healthcare delivery. So that's where I think that we are. And I've been writing a lot lately about what I call the middleman mentality. You know, we look for these small fixes. It's like you wake up in the morning in Dallas and you see a crack in your driveway and you decide, oh, pave it over. (laughs) You know that there's broken roots, the roots underneath that that are breaking it. And if you just pave it over, it's gonna work for maybe six months or a year, no. You don't do what you need to do, which is to address the fundamental underlying problems. So that's why I think we still have the problems. I mean, the current system was designed for the past when patients had one disease, they had appendicitis, a broken bone, a breast cancer. They didn't have multiple problems all at once. They didn't have chronic diseases. They didn't have complex treatments where we've kept the system of the past, and it's just outdated, antiquated for today. That's so well said. So, but how do we fix that in the USA? You think, you know, money shouldn't be an issue. How do we fix that today? I mean, in this country? Well, it's, it's actually interesting to me, Rod, you know, <clears throat> for my book on caring how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients. And by the way, all profits from both that book and the one I wrote before it go to Doctors Without Borders, which is a wonderful charity uh, that everyone should be supporting for global relief. But um, I, I did a lot of research and I found that in 1932, the leading academics, policy experts, physician leaders were brought together. So the time when the United States was in the tremendous economic pressure coming really still on the tail end of the depression. And this CCMC, this committee to, uh, to look at cost um, in medicine containment came together. And their recommendations then are the same recommendations that exist now. Move from fee-for-service to capitation, a single amount of money given to a group of physicians to mm-hmm. take care of a group of patients and reward them based upon the quality excellence and the lack of um, unnecessary costs that are created. We pay them differently and you're gonna get different results. 
And then, of course, once you're capitated, they need to be integrated and working together as one because you can't lower costs just by working faster. Right. You do it by doing things better, not by simply doing less on behalf of patients. And so that's what they recommended. Now, it's fascinating to me, you know, you're an expert in politics, you know, a lot of very big elected officials across Texas and the United States. But if you look at this, I dare you to tell me another piece of legislation that Nixon, Clinton, Trump, and Biden all agree on. Besides <laughs> that all four of them have pushed the federal level to move from fee-for-service to pay for value, and it still hasn't happened. That, isn't that outrageous? I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable because it's all about, you know, longevity, health care. And so, so beyond the politics, you know, I know you didn't Kaiser, I mean, when you headed Kaiser, you did a version of that, did you not? And it worked well, right? It definitely worked well. I think that were I still the head, I would have moved very quickly into where I think it needs to go, which is a greater integration of medical care and technology. How do you do you know, that? How do you do that? That's, I mean. Sure. So let me give you a thought experiment. Okay. And, you know, this is not specific to plastic surgery. This is general in medical care. And a thought experiment, I want you to remember, means you have to suspend incredibility. So I'm going to tell you that cost is irrelevant, okay. time is irrelevant, and convenience is irrelevant. Okay. So you have to suspend all of the other reasons why my idea won't work at all and okay. do the thought experiment. If patients could see a physician every single day, would clinical outcomes be better? I think yes. Yeah. Why not? Why not? Yeah. So the thought experiment then leads into, okay, if that's the case, what can we do to reshape American healthcare to accomplish that without the cost and inconvenience and time? Because we know those things aren't going to work. But right. if that's the goal... And I think we just have missed all the things that are in place. Let's take a very simple opportunity, Alexa, or whatever home device you have. Right. And imagine if for all of us, Alexa was able to assemble information, again, in a privacy, HIPAA-related way, fully right. protected, so they could say, you know, Rod, you're a little overdue for this test. And by the way, this disease you have, your blood wasn't very good in modifying that. And, you know, your doctor thinks you should be exercising every day. Now, I know you do exercise and all these things, but using you as the example. Again. And, by the way, you know, tell me what you ate today. And if you're taking some medications, make sure you take them and tell me. So you could put all of that advice that that doctor would give. The reason we say it would be better, the kind of health coaching. Right. Mental health support. Uh, tying into your Fitbit. This is pretty minor technology. And I think that once you start to see it's possible to do all of that. Now, if you look to see what's going on today, and as you know, I've been writing a lot about what I call the retail giants. Right. I think the Amazons, the CVSs, the Walmarts are looking to take over all of healthcare over the next decade. I think about it as three stages. There's the short game, the middle game, and the long game. In the short game, what they know is to win the long game, they've got to acquire 
all of the pieces. So you start to look at their acquisitions. Some of them may not make any sense until you understand it in the long game. CVS is a pharmacy. Amazon bought PillPack, which gave them licenses to be pharmacy in all 50 states. Walmart has a pharmacy. They're all building insurers. You have CVS that acquired Aetna. You have Walmart that signed a 10-year deal with United Health. You have Amazon that I think is probably not going to go traditional insurance. They're going to go for the companies that are so-called self-funded because they know these people well, all the other work that they do. And the delivery systems. You saw Amazon acquire One Medical, 188 clinics, 25 geographies, $3.9 billion. You saw CVS acquire Signify, 10,000 physicians providing virtual and in-person home care. The wow. deal between Walmart and United allows them to have both United's 53,000 physicians and its delivery system and Walmart's clinics. You start to say these three companies or combinations of companies are now positioned to be able or will be to replace all of medicine as we know it today. Then you get to the middle game. Where are they going to go with this? How are they going to have the bigger impact? And I think what you're going to see is this through Medicare Advantage. For your listeners who may not know, Medicare has two parts. There's traditional Medicare, that's fee-for-service. There's Medicare Advantage that is capitated. That does reward people who take the added wasted cost out of the system and it rewards the delivery system when it provides higher value. And it happens to be one of the most profitable parts of the Medicare reimbursement methodology. And then I think in the long term, it's going to come in and take over all of medicine. Now, I, when I talk to doctors, some of them are skeptical. Uh, they don't know what they're doing. This is healthcare. These right. are the largest companies in the world. You think these people aren't smart? Yeah. They're, they're playing a long game and you're judging them on the short game. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. So what do you think is the timeline for that? I mean, I, I like and, you know, I mean, you can either love or hate any of those companies, but, you know, they're doing a lot of great things and, and they've done it well, like you said. So what, what do you think is a timeline for that? That's like, you know, that's going to be a game changer. Yeah, I think the, the, the big timeline is a decade, 10 years really? before they take everything over. Yeah, I think you'll see pieces in the short run. I mean, they're going to be continually expanding. But, you know, these are like very smart generals, you know, unlike doctors who are not necessarily focused on the long-term strategy rather than the short-term problems. They're assembling their army. They're putting all of their tanks and other uh, machinery in place. They're not going to invade when they, you know, 30 days, uh, 30 <laughs> days before they have everything there. They're going to wait till everything's assembled. And when they move, they're going to move very fast. And it's yeah. going to take them a certain amount of time. You know, so, they're in 25 geographies, but they need to be in 100. And that means acquiring doctors, acquiring clinics. You look at what United has done. You know, they just keep adding physicians directly under the company to say nothing about what they're doing in the contracting, which, as you know, is the largest uh, health uh, plan out there right now. And interestingly enough, who has the best data analytics right. in the world? Amazon, uh, CVS, Walmart. <laughs> These are the companies who do that. The idea that they would ever tolerate 
the kinds of electronic health records we have today oh. is absurd. Uh, and the lack of data analytics, you know. Now, will this be better or worse for physicians? I don't know. Because I think right now for physicians, the future is not very bright. I, because I, they have very little negotiating power and they're suffering. And all I can see in a fee-for-service world is the only way you can do better is to do more. And they're already working harder than they should. Right. And so when I put the pieces together, I'm left with the fact that I think this could be better, but it would be even better if this process of change was led by clinicians, by doctors and nurses. Yeah, I mean, and, and we're, in the end, we're going to talk about, you know, what about what about those that want to go into medicine, including my daughter. But, but Robbie, so, I mean, I, I, you're so right about this. But what about the doctors that say, or the patients that say, but I want to choose my doctor, okay? I mean, I want to choose my doctor because, I mean, I, I like this. This will be cost-efficient, be very streamlined, technology-advanced. I mean, just look at look at Amazon. I mean, God, you can't you get on Google and they know exactly what you're doing. I mean, good and bad. So, so, so what about the choice part of this? Well, I, I think that there are, I'll call it, two different parts of, in quotes, choosing your doctor. Right. I think when your doctor is going to be chosen on the basis of uh, information and data, that's one thing. Right. To me, a really good example of that, and maybe we'll come to it a little later on, is cosmetic surgery. Right. You, know, you pick your physician because he or she has photos that you can look at, befores and afters. It's a specific procedure. You know who's going to be doing it. And unless that individual is deceiving you, you can expect you're going to get a result similar to that book of pictures the individual has shown you. Right. You get to something complex and you have no data. You know, someone's going to do surgery for a cancer of your lung, your prostate, right. your breast. How do you have information about how good they are? You know, I teach this class at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And remember, these are people who are really smart. You know, they're analyzing, they, for the past five years, they've all analyzed companies down to the third decimal place about the future stock price with a tenth of 1%. And I say, <laughs> how many of you get really good healthcare? And every hand goes up immediately. And then I say, how do you know? And every hand drops down. No one knows because that data is not available. So I think when people start to understand that you're actually going to be better off picking someone who's going to get a better outcome. Right. And there are companies that can help you figure out who that's going to be. Now, one of the, again, I, a lot of doctors say these companies are very good companies. These companies are very consumer focused. You know, I don't know about you. I buy a lot of things through Amazon. So they always deliver what they promise. It comes exactly on the day they say. Sometimes they're off by an hour or two at most. Right. It costs exactly what it should be, and it's as well-priced. I mean, they are giving me all the information I need to make my decision. If I want to buy a more expensive running shoe, I can buy that. It's my choice. Right. And so I think that that's what these companies are going to do. It's, you know, they're not going to compromise their brand. Their brand is to be high-quality, Great access, acceptable cost. Well, and I, 
I agree with you. So, okay, what do we do in the interim? I, I agree with you. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, it's certainly not the medicine that you and I were in and, and trained in. And obviously, as plastic surgeons, we have a variation of that. But So what do we do in the interim? And then I want to jump to aesthetic surgery. What, what do we do in the interim? So, so how do you find best care? You know, you're living in the Northeast, and so how do you find best care? Because I, I tell you, I have patients every day. I spend an hour or two a day helping my patients find best care. Well, I think you have to break that down a little bit between primary care and specialty care. Right. Within primary care, I think you have to have a relationship. So you have to see a variety of people. You have to talk to friends who are similar to you and find out who pleases them. I mean, it's really like a relationship that you're going to have for the rest of your life. Right. The second most important relationship you're going to have in your life. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, I think, in primary care. And you have to make sure that as you interview the person, as you date the person, that you're going to be, uh, you're going to find that he or she is concerned about helping you prevent disease, right. about helping you av- avoid complications from chronic disease. Right. Uh, and if, you have, if you're comfortable and if they're committed to the same outcomes you are, I think you can develop a way to accomplish that that works. So I think that that's an individual type of process that's based on relationship. I agree. I think when it gets to a procedure and you don't have the ability to know these statistics, you'd like to know them, but they're not available. You have to at least find out about their experience. And so if they've only done this operation once or twice, you know, it's not something they do very often. It's not something they are uh, very experienced at. Probably need a different surgeon. And the doctors may not be willing to tell you all of that, but you, do, you should know that. And you can ask them some hard questions. Questions like, okay, tell me you've done this 40 times. What's the worst complication you've had? Right. Uh, a year later, again, depends upon the procedure. What percent of your patients would you say have an excellent outcome? What percent of them do you think would be not willing to undergo it again? And you know, part of the challenge is you have to get the honesty. But I think in asking those hard questions, you're then able to find out whether this individual has the kind of outcomes and the kind of um, uh, experience that's required. I'd much rather have actual data telling me, okay, you know, after the total joint, what percent of your patients had excellent ambulation as measured by a treadmill? But as I say, right now in American medicine, that doesn't exist. Yeah, I agree. Well, you know, in the remaining few minutes, I want to really end on a high note with you because. What do we tell people today? I mean, we love we love medicine. We wouldn't. I wouldn't change anything. I know you wouldn't with your incredible career. So, what do we tell people today that want to go to medical school, that want to become caring, compassionate for doctors? I mean, how do we? I mean, this is complicated. I mean, you know, it was. It seemed like it was a lot simpler. Or at least maybe I was just ignorant. You know, we were all saying, "Oh, we were all so altruistic." But what do we tell people today about going into medicine? Like my daughter's, she wants to be a physician and. I can tell you, it's a different, it's a different, it's a different game. So, what do you tell people that ask you? I want to go to medical school. The first thing I, I tell them is it is the best job, best profession you can have. 
there is nothing else where you can earn a good, good income and go home every night feeling like you made the world better. Right. You actually have a positive impact on people. As you know, there's so many different subspecialties within it. You have a lot of choices for aligns best with the particular desires, whether you want to use your hands, you want to spend more of the time analyzing your eyes, uh, looking at x-rays or pathology. It's all the different ways that you can provide, that you can contribute to care, but it is the best profession. And I think as doctors, we've undermined ourselves over the past few years. I agree. Because rather than focusing on the solutions, we've spent so much time focusing on the problems. You need to address the problems to then create the solutions. The problems themselves are not the end, it's the solutions to the problems that exist. Yeah. The second thing I would tell them is after you graduate, spend five years becoming the best at your, at your craft. Focus on that. Become the best doctor or the best nurse because you can be in different parts of healthcare. Right. I'm so good that your skill level is undoubted by anyone else. And then become a leader. The problems in medicine are always growing. I believe the opportunities are growing far more rapidly. You know, we, should, we haven't even started to talk about something like the smartphone that right. when I was in that Oregon Health Sciences building, <laughs> 10 years before the smartphone would be introduced, and how much do we use that today? How do we find the ways to be sure that all of us can match the performance of the best? This, these are not particularly hard tasks to do, but someone is going to have to lead the way. And I often tell people these days that leaders need to use three organs very effectively. They need to use their brain for logic. They need to use their brain to be able to see the opportunities. They need to use their brain to be able to let others who haven't yet seen it be able to see it. But they need to use the heart too, through stories and patient lives saved and be able to connect with people emotionally because no one really cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Right. And then finally, they need to use their spine because it takes courage to lead the way, to make the changes. And I often get asked by people in leadership uh, pathways, well, what happens when I experience pushback? And I say to them, if you're not getting pushback, you're not leading. That is what leadership is all about. And someone, some group, some individuals will be able to shake American medicine out of the funk that it's in and make the changes that are there. And like yourself, I believe that people are best able to do it are the ones closest to the patient. Yeah, I agree. Wow. I'm going to send that to my daughter. Robbie, it is always such a pleasure. And you're one of those amazing leaders that's going to help transform and is transforming medicine today because you speak the truth. And sometimes you're right. You get a lot of pushback. People don't want to hear the truth sometimes and the reality. And I tell you, it's always refreshing. I learn so much from you every time I talk to you. And I know our readers will and our, and our, and our podcast uh, folks will as well. So thank you again for taking time out of your day to, to join us uh, today on Roy Knows Podcast. And uh, 
Always a pleasure, Robbie. Okay, take care, and I look forward to seeing you in person soon. It's my privilege uh, to be on your show, Rod, and keep up your great work, and I appreciate all you do to educating the American public. Thanks again for having me today. You bet. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye.